0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, General. You. Thank, we you. Thank you. Thank you, General. My pleasure, General. I really appreciate you doing this. You know, um, just a few days ago, I was looking at the Washington Post, and as you know, they like to pick a quote of the week, and, uh, this is a truer audience, so I'll go ahead and read this quote. Uh, NSA and CIA, former CIA, NSA and CIA Director General Michael Hagan, um, said, the reliance on air power has all the attraction of casual sex. It seems to offer gratification, but with very little commitment. We need to be wary of a strategy that puts emphasis on air power and air power alone. So I thought that might be a good way to start our conversation. <laughs> well, I don't know that's a good
1: analogy to be fair. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think for everybody here, I mean... What you should understand is air power is our differentiator in this country. I mean, you know, we control the skies. When we go into any combat area, that's the first thing we do is get control of the skies because the air power projection will keep us basically safe and will control the battlefield. The, uh, the You know, some of you could probably go back to uh, our conflict in Bosnia. You know, if you remember General Wesley Clark, everybody said, well, we're just going to do B-52s and F-117s and, you know, and everybody's going to raise their hands and, you know, the Serbians and the Croats, you know, they're pretty tough people. They, you know, they get bombed and, you know, they've been in fights for many, many centuries. Uh, and, you know, essentially there's peace there now, but it really wasn't about air power that, that made that peace. And I think the Middle East is different. Uh, in the sense that you're not going to bomb anybody in the submission when you have the will to execute things that you want to do. And uh, I was just with Oliver North. He's been here a couple times in the last month, and we've known each other a long time, and I was just kind of reminding him about a statement he made when he was giving his testimony in Capitol Hill, and some of you will remember this. He said... Uh, uh, one of the senators had asked him, well, Oliver North, uh, you have, uh, you know, had a security system put in your house and it was because somebody was, uh, you know, threatening your family. He said, yeah, his name was Osama bin Laden and I took him for his word. But see, the rest of the world said, well, you know, this is a third world player and we don't think he has the capability nor the will or the means to actually execute. Well, 9-11 came along, and we understood what will really mean. And so on the battlefield, when you talk about air power, it's about breaking the will of the enemy to do things or to degrade and destroy their capability to fight you back. But the one thing you can never kill on the battlefield is will. Will transcends death, life, borders, cultures, uh, and I think that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle that many of our legislators up in Washington DC forget. Uh, that human quality is really one of those values that you can't underestimate. Now on the battlefield, we never underestimate it. If somebody says they're going to do something, we take them for their work. Because if they're there and they want to do harm to you, they're going to try to do it. And so, if they say they're going to do it, they want to do it. So, when we talk about air power, air power, you know, shapes the battlefield. But the men or women on the ground have to go out and control the space. You know, if you think about the battle space, it's really like five dimensions that have to be controlled. And ultimately, that unwritten part that has to be controlled cannot be controlled by a plane... You know, we could probably, well, we've done it many times. We've flown aircraft around the globe, uh, with and without pilots and that never had to land unless they wanted to because we have a logistics, uh, structure that allows our aircraft to fly for a long time. However, at some point you gotta come back and get fuel. That's the reality. Ground forces are persistent. They're persistent on the ground. They can be there, they have a presence, uh, and that makes the difference, I believe, in whether you can control the situation. And so air power has its role, but it doesn't, you know, I think the only time we actually had a, uh, a force raise their hand was to one of our UAVs during desert storm. Uh, a bunch of conscripts in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, a couple of our UAVs flew around, and They raised their hand and said they quit. That's the only time I know in history that that's actually occurred with an aircraft. So, most of the time, it's going to be somebody on the ground.
0: But especially in a situation like this, where you have the opposition going into villages and intimidating the residents. Some of the residents may be willing, but as we know in Afghanistan... Quite often, and I suspect the same thing in Iraq and Syria. The villagers don't want these people, but they realize that if they don't let them in, they're going to be killed, beheaded, whatever. So, how do you go into these villages and know who the good and bad guys are?
1: Well, I think there's uh, most of the time you're going to know who the bad guys are. You know, most of the villagers. My experience is that uh, in the Islamic world, you know, there's a there's a custom that if a traveler comes up to your door, you let them in. Doesn't no matter what the situation is, that's part of the culture. And, uh, and this happens in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places all the time. And, but what happens with the bad guys, they stay. And then they threaten. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of gruesome situations, uh, because I think it's a point that you need to understand is that when they want to control the, the villages, what they'll do is go behead one of their kids. And I found many different kids in the Euphrates River that were beheaded uh many times because that's the way they control. That's control of fear. So, you know, of course, my Marines who are well trained, you know, they'd come around and they'd say, Well, sir, I don't understand why they don't stand up to these guys. I said, Well, you know, you got a sixty ton main battle tank and you got all this capability, and they've got one AK. Uh, weapon AK forty seven weapon with a couple of rounds and they got to defend their family, and the reality is they can't do it. And so when we come in, we have to understand the. Uh, and I guess maybe the the metaphor I might use. Um, some of you are familiar with the the movie The Magnificent Seven, and and I use that scenario a lot with my men. I said this is pretty much the same thing. You know, you had. The, the little Mexican uh, farming community, and the gunslingers came in to keep the banditos off of them. And that's basically what we were. We were a series of Magnificent Seven events in every village in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so it's really hard to, to keep the bad guys out if they have the will to be there. But I would say that, you know, when you go back and look at this issue... This issue has been eight years in the making. Now, in my opinion, um, and I said this many times, Ambassador Khalilzad, General Casey, the president, we have classified video uh, uh, you know, teleconferences. is that the reality is when we pushed the Shia in charge of Iraq, we created something that hadn't been created since 1171. And that was when Saladin kicked out the Crusaders, and you had a Shia in charge of an Arabic nation. So what we have is we have Shia in charge of an Arabic nation. because The Sunnis, who are Arabic, and you always got to remember, this is a culture clash. It's a culture clash between the Ottoman Empire, the Arabic Empire, and the Persian Empire. And you can't miss that. And many of our politicians miss that. That part does not go away. And so that discussion that is going on right now between General Allen and I'm sure the rest of the leaders up in Washington DC, see they're talking about well how do we make a coalition that's going to fit this problem? But part of that problem is going to be challenged by the fact that the Shias are still in charge of an Arabic nation. And remember 90% of the Islamic world are Sunnis. And I guarantee you the Sunnis are looking at this, because they tell me about it all the time. And they understand this is a historical point in time that they see as the West supporting Shia, which means supporting Persians, which means supporting
0: Iran. Well, let's jump right now to building this coalition. There was a conference in Paris. Tell us about how the French got the lead to do that. About 40 countries attended. Only 10 uh, Arab countries. Some were not invited. Iran, there's confusion about whether they were invited or not invited and what was the United States' role in that. Um just give us sort of a better sense of this delicate balance that took place in Paris, and focus too, if you will, on Iran as well as Syria.
1: Well, I think uh, you know my perception of the of the meeting and the reason you have it in France is because France's history and their colonial period uh, in the Arabic world, especially with Algeria and Morocco and that sort of thing. So they're but they uh, weren't there. They were no, they were, they were not invited. And uh, but I think that was driven by us uh in in you know for most of it and and I'm still perplexed by the fact that Morocco wasn't invited. I mean we do so many military operations and training with Morocco it just seems unconscionable that they weren't invited. And I'm not sure exactly why they weren't. Um, you know this issue about uh Iran uh is very interesting. In fact I was talking to a couple of people in Tehran the other day and the and the challenge is that they don't hear as much about what you hear because of the way the media is controlled um, but the uh they do hear the periphery and you know one of the the things is they think that they can provide uh something in this argument the um, but I don't know where Secretary Kerry is. I mean, I think uh, you know the, the report is that he says maybe Ron does have a role. I don't know. I mean, it depends. It's like stirring the pot and putting a little bit of chili pepper into your orange juice, right? It's going to taste kind of. Ugly. And essentially, the UAE
0: and the Saudis probably wouldn't participate at the same level.
1: Well, you know that's interesting. I mean, I think the Saudis. My impression. I was talking to some folks in Cairo the other day. Cairo's uh, at least what they told me, Cairo is absolutely interested in working with Saudi Arabia. And remember, that's a that's a natural Arabic alignment. Uh, and and by the way, in the Arabic world, Cairo is the center of all Arabic things, and that's what they would tell you. Now, you know, the Saudis will say Riyadh because that's where most of the money is, but culturally, it's it's Cairo. Um, but I think. Uh, if you look at UAE, we've you know we've sent aircraft from Fort Worth to UAE. In fact, I was talking with Gordon England the other day, and uh, and since he when he was at Lockheed Martin, we were talking about a, a project I was working on there that um, they're interested in F sixteen parts. And he said, well, you know, I made the sale to UAE, and they have F sixteens that are better than some of ours. And I said, well, that's really interesting. So they have the capability. So the question is: is why does UAE not want to participate? And I think part of it is because Dubai and Abu Dhabi are melting points in business right now, and they don't want to disturb that economic center. But you know yeah, that relationship was, with Iran, like exactly. Right. Well, actually, Iranians go in and out of Dubai all the time. So you know, if you want to see the melting pot of uh, what's going on in the Arab world, just Fly into Dubai and you'll see everybody that you want to see. And uh, and that's the reality. So I think, you know, in some ways they may think that they're kinda of like Switzerland, you know, it's kind of a neutral neutral country.
0: Parenthetically the ambassador at the UAE will be our guest on October twenty third at a luncheon. So it'll be a good chance to hear what he has to say about all this. Yes. But, you know, there's a and I always thought it was an Arab proverb, but I learned today with Sanskrit that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So where does Syria
1: fit in? I think Syria is, uh, you know, it's what it is. It's a it's a mixed bag right now. Or more I mean, specifically, I should say Assad. Well, I, you know, where does our government want him to be? See, one day he's the bad guy, the next day maybe he's
0: our ally. I
1: mean, you know. So your advice on the know. president?
0: What do we want to do?
1: Well, I would I would say. What I said about Syria before I retired, specifically to the Secretary of Defense at the time, is we need to go there and partition the fighters. And the question is, why didn't we want to go? We didn't want to go because the Russians were strong allies to the Syrians, And Putin made a lot of noise about it. And so we kind of stayed away. Remember the red line that disappeared? How many times now? I don't know. So, you know, ultimately, you have to do something with Syria. Uh, culturally, Syria is very historic to the Arabic world, but what you have inside Syria are are tribal fights. And so the question is, do you want to be inside, you know, this, this sort of civil war, if you will, Uh because the question is, You know, I I always say it's like if you had fights among your kids, you know, you let them fight until they exhaust themselves and you go, okay, you're finished now. And then you go back and say, okay, here's how we're going to run this operation from, you know, for the rest of the time. But, you know, what I see personally from from a military perspective is failed diplomatic efforts. You know, see, everybody's saying, well, let's bring the big hammer along, the U.S. military and hit them in the head with the hammer. Well, you know, we, you know, we could talk about ancient insects that we've used every poison on the mankind, but they're still here. And so the question is, if you use this hammer, will this hammer be effective? I think our diplomatic efforts will be a lot more effective than our military. The military is a shaper of policy. You know, it's kind of like uh, the... Uh, with uh, its own war, you know, military is, and war is an extension of politics. And Because when you want to influence the other guy, you use your strength to influence them. But they may not always be cooperative. And I think, you know, right now, I think we have a different world. You know, I think we're seeing maybe it's something that's being undone in Washington but I think what everybody else is seeing, Putin and others, even our allies, is they're seeing a weakness in us to make decisions. And that weakness, I think, makes us vulnerable. Uh, but remember, generals in the United States don't start wars. Politicians do. Generals just get to try to clean up the messes, and then if it doesn't
0: work, they get blamed for it. But that's okay. Well, let me ask you a funny question. Do You have confidence in President Obama and his leadership.
1: You know, I, I I've been looking at President Obama as um, from a linguistic standpoint. You know, my wife's a linguist, so you know, words mean something. Well, there's a lot of words that he's been saying that don't mean a lot, and uh, and that that concerns me because you know, when you're communicating to the rest of the world, you know, the the thing that just kind of probably irked you guys too was we didn't have a strategy. I said, what are you talking about? We you just signed off on it three years ago. The National Security Strategy, you can go out there and Google it. The QDR, which is our political military integration of the budget. And then the National Military Strategy. Now, you can't get the classified portion of that, but there's a classified portion of that because it says this is what the military is going to do to enable the political statements that the President signed off. If you go look at it, that's our strategy. We haven't figured out a strategy. We have a strategy. You know, a lot of people work on that strategy. Yeah, that, that's probably it. He didn't read really. it. But, I mean, that is something we gotta think about. When you say that, and you're the leader of the free world, you know, that sends creeps up everybody's spine. Okay, so what have you been doing the last
0: six, seven years? Working on that golf okay. game. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a question, and you've heard me ask this question to others, that I always ask of people who are in a position to know, why were we not able to truly reach an agreement on the status of force agreement with Iraq? We've heard that President Obama wanted to be able to say that he was successful in withdrawing all the troops. We've also heard that uh, Iran put pressure on Maliki not to allow it. What do you think? Well, what do you know? Well, knowing some
1: of the guys who were working on that project, uh, the fundamental reason that they told me that we didn't do it was the fact that um, the president literally just wanted to get out of Iraq as fast as he could. It was gonna take more negotiation. And, you know, if you understand the status of forces agreement, it's about how if military guys do something stupid, how are they gonna get legally prosecuted? And uh you know, essentially, we did not want them to prosecute our guys and go through their jail system, their legal system, because it's a little bit different. So, uh, and I'll use the Philippines as an example, because we've had that status of forces agreement for quite a long time. Uh, if a Marine or a sailor got in trouble in the Philippines, they would, uh, first of all, get uh, uh, arraigned by the local uh, organization, especially if there was a crime against a, an individual of Philippine nationality. And then, uh, our lawyers would basically stay in touch with them, and so they would have legal representation through the, uh, uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice. But at the same time, they, if, if it was agreed upon that they would serve time in a Filipino jail, it, that was one of the agreed things. We do that in Japan and so forth. So it depends on the egregiousness of the crime. But ultimately the the legal guys will sit down and sort through how that will actually work depending on the on the level of the crime. So uh and why that couldn't get done in Iraq, you know, is just a matter in my mind, a matter of negotiation. And so I'm not sure maybe we tried hard enough. But, you know, you'd have to know Maliki as an individual. You know, he has always been a staunch anti-Sunni Muslim. And so, we could see that there was going to be problems. And, and again, because we pushed them into that position, I mean, we can go back and talk about the, the constitutional referendums and all the things that were going. On, But, you know, remember, the fundamental issue was that Sodom was a Sunni, so all Sunnis must be bad, which was not really the case. You know, and Sodom was very abusive to his own Sunni people. Um, in fact, if you talked to people in Ramadi and Fallujah, they would tell you stories that were, you know, probably worse than maybe some of the ISIS guys today. So you just didn't hear about them because there was no reporter there at that time. But uh yeah, the status of forces thing is is a troubling thing because that typically is always something that we resolve uh when we you know downsize or leave occupation forces in a And then a it got country. resolved
0: very quickly in the last few weeks. Exactly. exactly. You know, many of us read Farid Zakaria's column and we watch GPS, the Global Public Square, so I pulled cool, what he wrote last week. So let me be a devil's advocate or represent representative here. Mm-hmm. He said, don't always take the, the bait, implying that the beheadings were designed to really enrage the United States, suggesting that Baghdadi wanted to kill Americans on Arab soil. So if we put boots on the ground, you know, some Americans will, well, will die. Don't overestimate the enemy. We've all been talking about how ISIS has over a a third of Iraq and a third of Syria, but uh, Zakaria said these areas are uninhabited and they're not important cities. And then here's one point I I suspect you'll agree with. Remember that a political solution is imperative and that this battle will not be won by the military alone. But are we taking debate? I think we are. You know, if you think about it, I
1: mean, you know, I I love being a techno nerd, but I keep telling people, don't get overwhelmed by the technology. And you know, there's so much information out there, and you see it. You know, it's like operant conditioning. You know, like Pavlov's dogs, right? You know, you hear the bell and here's the food, and then you take the food away, and then you keep salivating. And so, in many cases, I think that's exactly what we're doing. We're we're oversaturated with media information and instead of looking over the horizon and creating our vision what is our vision you know i would challenge all of you what is the vision of the united states you know i grew up in philadelphia so i grew up in the shadow of the constitution and constitution hall so i've read those things 10,000 times so i know where we started the question is where we are where are we today you know do we really believe Wholeheartedly in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence, and you know, so what is our vision? I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I used to argue this all the time. What is our vision? You know, and here's a here's a good example. When we were talking about mission in Iraq, the the mission statement was so ungodly long. Uh, you know, it was just unbelievable. It was something like. It went something like this, Iraq will be a free and independent nation, join the League of Nations, you know, and and it just went on and on. It was like two paragraphs, and I said, that's not a mission statement. I said, either it's a free and independent nation, or it's a colony of the United States. And I said, at the $12 billion a month I was spending, it looked more like a colony of the United States, because that's what we were spending to run all the operations, rebuild the nation put the oil infrastructure back in, health care, roads, hospitals, schools, you know, all of that. It was all your hard-earned money. So at the end of the day, you know, I used to say, what vision do we want? What end state do we want on the day we walk out of here? And I don't think that was ever clear. I just think the president, you know, when we changed president, it was, we're just going to leave. And see, we have that same... Scenario that could happen by the end of this year in Afghanistan. And so, and you gotta remember, Afghanistan has a 50,000 year history. And if you look at it, six empires, including us, have been through there, and all of them have left. So, it's not a good track record. And so at some point, we've got to decide, what is the vision in these conflicts? So if you get into them, you got to think through
0: them enough so that we know what we think we're going to do.
1: You well, let's know, go back
0: to ISIS, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ryan Pauper says, this is about America's national security. We don't understand real evil, organized evil very well. Do you feel that ISIS is a threat to our national interests?
1: Well, it certainly can be. I think what uh, if, if they start
0: going after soft targets,
1: embassies, traveling public, Certainly, that's going to create fear among the people, uh, because people will start to change their behavior. Well, I'm not going to take that trip to London that I thought I was going to take, or that trip to France. You know, if you've been to Paris, and I've walked through the Arab Quarter in the north part, north of the Seine River there, um, if you look at the graffiti, which is mostly Arabic, it's all Arabic graffiti. It's like going to East L.A. when East L.A. was real big in the game. It's the same thing. But you also got to remember that ISIS has been formed from a number of things. Not only Syria, but it is about policy. And it's about policies that have occurred, especially in Europe. You know, if you were Algerian after the Algerian conflict, you know, the French allowed the Algerians to come, but they never made them first-class citizens. And even today... The, uh, the Algerian citizen, Islamic citizen, uh, is second fiddle to get a job, the second fiddle to go to school. So when Paris blew up the, a few years ago, that was all about that. Frustrated teens. And now, you know, this is their opportunity to backlash at the establishment. And so the question is, is how do you deal with young men and women that think they're disenfranchised. You know, if they don't think they can get an education, they can't get a job, they can't feed their families, and they can't be productive, they're going to be trouble. It doesn't matter where they are, what planet, what country, they're going to be in trouble. You know, it's like I tell our law enforcement guys, I said, you know, 10% of most of the people that should be in Huntsville are probably there, but there's probably another 30% that don't need to be there because... They weren't guided well. They weren't mentored well. And I think that's what we have here. I think we have a backlash to all the frustrations that that they have. Uh, and this is one way to deal with it. Now, let me just talk about Baghdadi. Baghdadi's brother, we killed in an operation. Baghdadi I had in my uh, detention center in uh, Ramadi. And uh, then I transferred him to... Uh, Abu Ghraib prison, which was the bigger prison than, in Baghdad, which the army ran, and then about three months later, the army released him. I said, "Why are you releasing him?" I said, "You know, this guy's going to come back to haunt you." Well, here he is. Why was he released? Uh, <coughs> not enough evidence. Yeah, yeah, Hell, plenty of evidence now. But you know, these are these are issues, and you know, I used to tell my lawyers, I said. You know, when when you're dealing with these issues, you're trying to apply, you know, our law that you know was learned from the British, and then we're going to apply it over Sharia law. I said it's a it's a it's a real, you know, sort of sandstorm, if you will. Um, and uh, and a lot of times when we applied that law, we we were trying to do what we do here in the United States, and I said. You know, this is a little bit different. You know, we send guys to, uh, Guantanamo, for example. Everybody said, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to give them due process? Well, I said, look, if you're not going to be a hypocrite, you have to give them due process. But that means you have to share evidence with the prosecuting and the defending attorneys. Well, that wasn't happening. And, and there were, and most of these were military attorneys, and military attorneys certainly had the ability to see classified material. And a lot of times we didn't give them classified material. I mean, okay, so we're really hypocrites. So we got to figure out what this legal system is to deal with all these guys. So if you're on the battlefield, you know, as I used to tell my guys, I said, you know, the uh, in the in the in the world of Sun Tzu, if you've read Sun Tzu's Art of War, one of the tenets and oracles of Sun Tzu is that the greatest warrior is the warrior who never gets his enemy to fire a shot. And that means you have to get in the mind of the enemy. So I used to do this with my guys who said, well, you know, you're on the battlefield, we're going to practice this. Of course, you know, they look at me strangely. Sure, like, they're going to stick a gun in my face, I can't shoot them. Well, (laughs) it depends. Uh, But ultimately, they got it. And they understood that you had to figure out what they wanted. And the reality is the first two years of the war, we never asked them what they wanted. And and it was kind of interesting. You know, when I went back on my second tour into Iraq, you know, I told General Casey, I said, Well, you know, I'm going to go start talking to the the terrorists. And he said, Well, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists. I didn't say anything about negotiating. I said, We're going to talk to them. I said, It's a fine point. I said, negotiating means that you've already decided what you want to give up and what they might want to want want and give up, and we know. We're going to figure out what we mutually want. And so, this really became the beginning of the Sunni awakening. So, I was telling Jim, I said, I got a film, which we've never edited and shown, and, and I'll do that at some point, of the 400 terrorists that I met with in the middle of a battle in Ramadi. Uh, some of them got killed within uh, 30 days of that meeting because the al-Qaeda heard about the meeting of course they tried to attack us while we were in the meeting and it was quite interesting and um, of course my marines you know when I told them I was going to do this they said sir do you think they'll come I said we'll see and then when 400 guys come walking through Ramadi I said "You know, I, I told them all I'm going to take your guns but I'll give them back to you I said but if you shoot at us I said well that'll be the end of that but at the end of the day, they all wanted to understand what we wanted to know from them. And so it, it's negotiating 101.
0: Yeah, What's the other was, side? Before, before we open it up, let me just say this. I would argue that Al-Qaeda, we know what their objectives were. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were involved with what was happening in Iraq, we know their objectives, certainly the Taliban. But here with the Islamic State, ISIL or ISIS, whatever we're gonna call it. I'd like to explain the, the difference. But they want to create a california. Yeah. And they're making moves towards that. So it seems to me that a lot of you suggest it might not work in this.
1: Well, situation. it may not. I mean, you know, when you're when you're that extreme and there's no room for negotiation, uh, then, you know, you probably have no uh choice but to have this actual conflict. Um and ultimately, the question is, there's a human rights issue here. The question is, is how long will we let them kill innocent people until we do so? You know, ultimately, as a country, we've said ever since, you know, the the annihilation of the Jews during World War II, we would never let Holocaust occur. Well, we've let them occur four or five times since then. So the question is, are we going to let that occur? And I think, uh, you know, ISIL, the... The, the Islamic State, you know, the Levant, if you will, is really about, and that's why the the federal government uses that term, because it's about developing the caliphate. Um, but when you think about that, this is about reclaiming something that they had uh many years ago, you know, in the first century. And so this is Kind of creating a. I don't think it's about the 42 virgins or whatever. I think it's about control. I think it's about power. I think it's about uh, oil money. I think it's about influence philosophically versus the West. Truly, you're
0: looking at a very relatively small group of people that are leading this or that are fighting. It. Well, like 30, but you know, 60, this is seven. this is
1: like this is like throwing a rock in the, in a in a pond. Right, the ripples start going out. And I think what you can't discount here, and what I'm looking at, is what's happening with the Sunnis around the world. You know, I'm keeping my eye on what's happening uh, with the uh, Muslims in India. I mean, I was just talking to our guys in India the other day, and they've all said that uh, ISIL has already made inroads into Punjab. Uh, so that's a, that's kind of interesting, because that means they are probably already in Pakistan, so, the Punjab is just right across the border, so how will that affect India? You know, the so-called largest democracy? It has all these other challenges, right? Hindus and Buddhists and so on and so forth. Um, so I think this group is different. I think it has more will than al Qaeda. It's more organized, it has more military capability. In fact, many of the the guys that I believe are in ISIL because Baghdadi is 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 one of those guys, Uh, they came from Sodom's army. Now, there's probably three or four generals from Sodom's army that are probably uh, some of the hub guys in there. There was a corps commander, his name escapes me right now, but there was a corps commander who fought that eight-year war with the Iranians. Very experienced military guy. So when you looked at how these guys came in, It was a very organized military. They came in columns, they moved, they, you know, it was almost like shock troops. You know, they overwhelmed people, they took territory, they went to strategic positions. You know, they're occupying the two largest reservoirs, uh, Haditha and the reservoir in Missoula. Because they can control water. You know, no water, no life, right? And the oil fields too. And the oil fields, yeah, and they're selling. So now the question is, In the economic part of this, is where is that oil being sold and who's buying? You know, so if they're making three or four million dollars a day or whatever it is, somebody's buying oil. Maybe it's somebody in Southern Europe. You know, maybe the Balkans are buying because they're in need of of oil. So who knows where some of these barges are going? But you know, our fifth fleet, who covers that area, that would be part of their responsibility to kind of look at that. And then we would conduct what would be known as maritime interdiction operations, MEO operations, to, uh, to try to deal with that.
0: Well, let's open it up. With, Amy, you got a mic here? Yeah. I see lots of questions. Let's go there, right in the back of the, turn the military, the first column over here. <laughs> <laughs> the left flank. Quickly, I just want to get your personal perspective on a statement made by General uh, James mm-hmm. It mentioned something basically to the effect of just uh, one of the shows. That if you're a senior military officer, could you hold the mic? If you're a senior military officer and you're in disagreement with uh, uh, the defense secretary or the administration based on the strategy or lack of strategy, uh, should you lay your stars down, basically in protest? And so I'd like you to get your perspective as a senior military officer as a protest based on on that. Should you? Dream of that just, just set away. well I, I think you know
1: there, what he's talking about is, is loyalty uh, to the president and that sort of thing you know at the end of the day every military person swears to the constitution they don't swear to the president it's about the wall and the land at the end of the day if you see something going wrong you know it's like when I was told well I can't go and talk to the terrorists I did it anyway of course General Casey said well you know I might court martial." I said you might and I said, but at the end of the day, if it works, you're probably going to say, Let's do some more of that. And that's basically what ended up happening. But at the end of the day, if to me it's a responsibility of especially the generals, to not just roll over with the politicians. You know, the politicians said policy, but at the end of the day, they must come to the table and say, I disagree, but at some point Everybody argues and discusses and discusses and then ultimately, okay, we're going to go follow whatever the direction is. But the debate is the most important thing. Uh, and I think that's important for every American that you have to debate. I mean, that's your, that's your American given right is to debate things you disagree with. But if everybody's going to be a yes person, then, you know, I'd say our country's going to be in trouble. And especially if our military are just going to be yes persons, I
0: think we're going to be in real film. And if you'd identify yourself too. Hi, um, um, I'm all old uh, COVID. i a school science major and now. Uh, one of the things that stuck with me when I was studying that course was the old saying that if you don't stop the spread of malaria, you got a great swamp. You can get told treat the, symptom, the, the uh, symptoms, treat the root cause. If best case, and, and I said the policy is a good better tool of use of the nursery, what are the root causes that we should be applying our diplomatic efforts to try and drain, swamp and then from drawing in additional support for those angry youths?
1: Well, I think fundamentally, it, it comes down to poverty. I mean, people that are disenfranchised, with no job, no ability to feed their families are going to look at ways to strike back. I mean, it's no different than here in the United States. I mean, if, uh, you know, and I'm sure from the legal standpoint, uh, you know, I'm sure I'd get argued with on this. But at the end of the day, people go to court and a lot of them get punished because they're poor. And so this is one of the challenges in this area as well. And I think we have to have a much broader perspective on how you're going to deal with that. Because think about it this way. In in the Islamic world, uh, if somebody gets killed, you're required to do revenge. Now, the way that that got resolved, if my troops killed somebody that was not supposed to be killed, they were innocent. I did something called the Salacia payment. Now, you know, of course, there was a lot of criticism about the Salacia payment. I said, it's about stopping people from killing more people. I said, now, if you don't like that scenario, then we can do away with it, and people will get killed. It's as simple as that. But what the Salacia payment does is it it sort of defuses the situation. You know, if a male gets killed in the Islamic world, their wife and their kids are destitute unless a brother or a cousin or some other male relative picks them up. So in a lot of ways, you end up creating uh, another sort of poverty, if you will, because there is no structure unless the family picks them up. And, and I saw that uh, in many tragic situations. So, you know, here's a mother with four or five kids out on the street because her husband is now dead and so 10 years from now 5 year old you know uh, Amir is going to be probably a suicide bomber because he's looking for revenge you know my mom suffered my sister suffered my brother suffered so we somehow we got to figure out how to unplug that and, and that's where the diplomats come in that's where the NGOs come in uh, but you know Many people will look at it and say it's an overwhelming problem, but I think you have to do something and calm the world down. Because right now, the the noise is pretty high.
0: Roland? We'll get you, Terry. Uh, Not yet? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Roland. Okay. Uh, Who would you lay the blame on for the lack of Bulgarian government in Iraq? Should it be Woodrow Wilson for leaving Paris early? And large lines across the Middle East or is it over or just the
1: control in the? Our- well you know it's a series of, uh, <clears throat> uh, of dominoes falling, you know and, and, and you know of course during the colonial period, I always tell my British counterparts I said, the reason we're here is because you guys messed us up 150 years ago so we're back. <laughs> and they would go, yeah, you're right. and uh, And that's pretty much true. I mean, you know, if you think about the colonial periods, whether it's in Africa, Europe, Middle East, Far East, uh, you know, they left legacies of, of broken countries. I mean, one of our biggest challenges right now is how do you deal with Africa, right? Africa, I was talking with some folks in uh, London last night about, uh, because they spend a lot of time in Niger and, and, uh, and in uh, northern Nigeria, and everybody's concerned about Boko Haram. Because Boko Haram, in the unstructured areas of Africa, they got free reign. You know? And, uh, and nobody's going after them. You know, if you look at, uh, Nigeria, for example, Nigeria uh, is a split country. Muslim north, Christian south. And, uh, so, the, and then you got tribal issues there. So, the, and the army, even as educated as it could be, um Is not organized as a disciplined military, very undisciplined military, Um, and you know, and 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 so what you have is places where the ISIL guys will go because they'll go
0: chaos. We love chaos because chaos is where they'll grow. But specifically, ask you about you know where we put the blame. Well,
1: I mean, you know, the, the blame is, like I said, I mean, it's a domino effect. I mean, it's each generation had their own problem. Uh, and so you can't just pin it on one person or one country. I mean, I think there's a series of issues that, that, uh, did occur. I mean, you could say roughly, uh, you know, when King Faisal and, and, uh, Roosevelt did uh, you know, the, the, uh, agreement to partition Palestine, you know, we still have that problem. You know, and nobody resolved the issues for the Palestinians. So now, you know, the Israelis say, hey, well this is our God given right. You know, it'll be a blood fight till the end of time. You know, so some of these things I, I you know uh the blood fights you you probably will continue to have. Um, but to just blame one person I or one country I mean, I'd like to say that the five colonial powers were the big issues: Spain, England, France, Belgium. You know, the Dutch. You know, they caused most of the problems.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's, let's hear from our friend from France, Terry. And let's anyway. <laughs> pray on this over on the side. Well, uh, the little doubt has been mistakes made over the last century for the least amount. The problem is that today we have ISIL in the middle of Syria and Iraq. And the question is, what do we do, what would you recommend we do to get rid of them? Because they are actually causing a lot more damage to the Muslim world than they are to the European world. Because everybody says, here they are again, here are those Muslims again. Attacking us yeah. and doing all this crazy stuff and beheading people—actually, the Islamic religion, as you know, has nothing to do with that. And in general, before as, as you answer that, I'll weave in my question too, if you would. It seems to me that if the Sunnis, especially from perhaps Morocco, but clearly Egypt, um, UAE, if they actually had troops. Or we could really document, and they were public about being involved in the conflict, and not just paying for it would make a difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, number one, the the in, in my world, the solution would be you have to have troops on the ground. The the and the first place I would go in Iraq is the base that we had that we gave up, uh, which was originally one of Saddam's air bases called Al assad and it's about 80 miles. Uh, uh, west of, uh, Ramadi. It's a big base. You can fly everything into it. Uh, you know, uh, every aircraft known to mankind can fly in there. And that should be our established area. Now, we had a base st- established at Balad, which uh, we also had a medical facility there and so forth. Um, that was a tertiary. Uh, hospitals, so that before our guys went to Germany, for example, they you normally know, stopped there. Those two bases, I think, would be very key to to establish our troops and presence there, and you could work from those bases and do a lot of different things. Um, I think, uh, in in terms of, uh, if you'll repeat your question again, sir. Well, what difference?
0: Do you, it seems to me that you had troops. From the Sunni countries mm-hmm. that were actually Jews mm-hmm. on the ground. Yeah, Korea. the, uh, well, let's just take. What would really document what you're saying what? is that the Muslims, the great majority, are just shocked about what's happening in one of the Well,
1: the, the most capable Arabic uh, army is the Egyptians. I mean, they have the history. You know, their history obviously goes back to Moses, right? So at the end of the day, they have the history with the fights, they had the fights with Israel and all that. They have capability. Now, the question is, is will the United States support? Them? You know, we've sent them so many mixed signals since the, uh, beginning of the, of the, uh, of the revolutions and so forth. Uh, you know, and that's what they're telling me. I mean, I knew General Sisi when he was a captain. You know, when we were both captains. And, uh, and we used to do a lot of exercise with the Egyptians. Bright Star was the big exercise we used to do. And uh, and then when everything sort of blew up, the first thing Secretary Clinton does was freeze their money. That meant they couldn't buy food, they couldn't buy oil. I mean, there was a lot of things, and so you created more misery in the, in the cities. And then there was a question about, well, you know, they didn't, we didn't like Marcy. Okay, he comes to New York. President Obama doesn't want to meet with him. You know, he's a democratic elected guy, okay, the population doesn't like him, they throw him out, we just kind of beat him up some more. And then secretary, uh, our current secretary, uh, of, uh, state goes over and he kind of lambasts him a little bit more. And then now he turns around, puts his hand out, well, can you come work with us? See, we haven't spent enough time working with the Arab League. See, the Arab League would have been the right venue to go to to get the coalition but we haven't worked with the Arab League for years and and the people we send to the Arab League discussions are probably three or four levels down below you know a deputy secretary and we really need to we need to bring that up so if you want to get a coalition you have to start looking at them a little bit differently so if the region's that important to us then we got to bring your political importance up as well yeah. I'll check on that <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> gee, I, I, I thought
0: lawyers work later than seven. They've they, been they old later than <laughs> seven. <laughs> 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 yeah, go, go ahead with your question. Thanks. Um, my concern is about sort of things. intelligence. We get good intelligence. And I have a Turkish neighbor who told me that Turkey is shifting to a secular nation. And his family is seeing more and more shift to the religious bias and women are being told to, to uh, follow the dress code of the, the religious groups. And we have a million displaced Syrians sitting in Turkey. So I'm just curious, like when you have confusion like that in a country and Turkey moves towards, uh, towards this kind of instability, mm-hmm. what can we do just how is our
1: intelligence working how do we use okay. that? yeah well our our intelligence is pretty darn good now the question is is when you deliver it to the politicians for the development of policy is another question so you can collect all the information you want it's what you do with it uh, you know when you bring up turkey turkey's a good example because I was having this discussion with some of the people in Cairo the other day Cairo has no trust of Erdogan. Absolutely no trust. And the reason is, is that he supports the Muslim Brotherhood. And he's still irate about the fact that Marcy's been gone. So, uh, what they told me in no uncertain terms is that the reason that, uh, Marcy, is, I'm sorry, uh, the way Erdogan is the way he is because of this Muslim Brotherhood overthrow is that he may be facil- facilitating ISIL. Now that's interesting because here's a NATO country, okay, and then there was none of the Arabs wanted to work with Turkey because of that, so they believe deep down he's part of the problem, and and that's a real that's a real sort of you know poke in the eye when you say I got this NATO country over here who's sort of the mod uh, the model moderate Islamic country with uh, and remember. Don't forget all the things that went on in Turkey here in the last year.
0: But when you say that, here's a report from the Middle East Institute that just came out uh, yesterday, and it says that one of the reasons that Turkey is a reluctant partner is that ISIS actually is holding 49 Turkish diplomats. Well, that's true,
1: but I think that that's only part of it. I think uh, I think that's uh, a convenient excuse. Now, uh, what the Egyptians told me, they said we think that what Erdogan's doing to the United States, he's playing nice on one side and he's poking you in the back of the head on the other side. And so I think we have to pay attention to that uh, because, you know, he has a big Kurdish problem. You know, so half the country is, is Kurdish on the eastern side where that interfaces with the northern Kurds in Iraq and the Kurds in, in northwest Iran. So now the Kurds have their own... Goals, right? Let's create Kurdistan out of those three countries. So that, that's another driver here. And that's why this is so complex because you have all these interests and, and we have to be smart about how do we deal with all this. You know, we want to serve sort of the Reader's Digest version of it, right? You know, just give me this, give me this and, you know, everybody sign an agreement and let's move on. And I think it's just gonna be more complex than that. But I think we have to do presence. We have to be physically in there. But to answer your question about intelligence, the more human intelligence we have (coughs) intelligence we have on the ground, human intelligence, that's that helps us understand what's going on.
0: We're gonna take two more questions. Yours and Bill, you'll have the last. Would you identify I keep on wanting people to identify themselves so we'll all learn who we all are? Certainly. <coughs> right. Um, uh, ISIS appears to be attracting more Western pastor holders to to help in their you know, I mean, Is there something that we should be doing domestically to prevent this? And also, second of all, is this really important for
1: us to be concerned Oh, absolutely. Look, the fastest growing religion in the United States is Islam. You know, so why? Now, you know, if we go down here to First Baptist, that's not what you'd hear at First Baptist, right? <laughs> so the reality is It is the fastest-growing religion in the United States. So there's a disenfranchisement that's going on for some, so they're looking for answers elsewhere. And not that you know, Islam shouldn't be a a religion that they follow. I mean, I tell everybody, look, if if you're not a hypocrite of the Constitution and it's about freedom of religion, I don't care what religion you have. As long as you do good things and don't fly planes into buildings, and, you know, I'm happy with it. But at the end of the day, I think we have to be really pay attention to all these dynamics in the United States. I mean, uh, you know, there was, uh, I think it was 60 Minutes or somebody did a piece on one of the, the guys that uh, came from North Carolina. He was a former uh, Army kid. And he got disenfranchised because he wasn't getting a job. And so next thing you know, he's going, I'm going over there to fight. And then he took on the mantra of, Well, everybody's trying to denigrate Islam. So, you know, there's a little bit of brainwashing going on there, and and I think we have to pay attention to it. You know, what's happening at the schools? I mean, I know the schools are looking at these dynamics a little bit, too, because they're playing out in some of the classrooms in some way.
0: So I think we all have to be concerned about it. Bill, you'll wait for the... mic, And I'll introduce you, Bill Haskins. We to fly fighters and surveillance out of well, we, we were. Now we, what we do now is we
1: fly transports in and out of there. But, uh, Turkey has not allowed us to actually take fighters and base the fighters there. So the fighters, most of the fighters right now are coming off carriers. But the problem with carriers is you have limited fly time. So if you fly from the Persian Gulf into Iraq, they maybe have an hour on the station. They got to turn around and get refueled.
0: The other comment is that you know, if, if we define the mission as a defeat and destroy ISIS and their allies, mm-hmm. period. Uh, I think Assad would help us because the enemies of Miami are my friends.
1: Well, it could be. The question is: is if you bring him in, the question is: is how do you manage him and control him? Because once you start deciding you're going to give him weapons, you know, they take on a life of their own. You know, the first thing I did when I went back to Afghanistan, you know, which was 20 days after 9-11, first thing was look for all the Stinger missiles we gave the Muser a D. You know, the good thing, uh, our guys at BAE Systems and all those guys that made that stuff, they put expirations on the triggers. And so most of the triggers wouldn't fire. I said, well, that was a good thing. You know, so so technology uh had a had a failsafe, which was a good thing. But we paid for all those stingers. And see I think similar scenario could happen. And if you go back and look at our period with the Russians, uh and you know, my first experience in Afghanistan was nineteen seventy nine when the Russians went in. And uh all those stingers that we gave them shot down over seven hundred aircraft, okay? And that was our support to Get the Russians out. Well, the Russians ten years later marched home. You know, so you got to be careful about what you give them, and that's why you know a lot of our guys at the Pentagon are concerned about what weapons are we going to give. Them? You know, if it's small arms, that's one thing, but when you start talking about knocking down helicopters, they can use them
0: against us as well as somebody else. Well, sure. Well, right now, when we're watching some of the actions that are taking place in Iraq, and they show a tank being blown up. That's the time that, that for provide. Absolutely. Yeah. We are so grateful to you for being a, you a, a member of the World Affairs Council Thank you. for your service. You. For, yeah. for more information about
1: the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.